All right, uh, handout, chapter 18, Embrace the Blessing of Rebuke. So if you didn't get one of those, there should be some on one of the back two tables there. And uh, so we're getting toward the end of our book. Uh, chapter 18, and then we have, it says coda, but it's uh, uh, the commission, the dollar, and the clock. And then uh, kind of a wrap-up on communing with Christ on a crazy day. So we'll probably combine a couple of those. But uh, those are not necessarily habits of grace, but they sort of flow out of some of these other things. What we, what we do with sharing the gospel, what we do with our time, our money, and then just sort of a wrap-up thinking through how to keep doing all these things in the light of the fact that uh, weeks tend not to be typical and days can be very busy. So how do we make sure we keep working on these things? Chapter 18 is one of those uh, chapters that's probably a little bit uncomfortable because it's a subject we don't necessarily want to talk about. Uh, embrace the blessing of rebuke. He says one of the most loving things that we can do for each other in the church is to tell each other when we're wrong. Call it correction, reproof, or rebuke. Paul uses all three terms in just four verses in 2 Timothy 3, 16-4-2. But don't miss what makes it distinctively Christian and a gift to our souls. It is a great act of love. The kind of rebuke the scriptures commend is the kind intended to stop us from continuing on a destructive path. And so, as we think about, I'm sure you're familiar with those verses, the idea that all scripture is given by God, God breathed, profitable for a variety of things that we might be adequate or mature, ready for every good work. And then right after that, there's no chapter marker in the letter that Paul wrote originally, 4, 1, and 2. Paul solemnly charges Timothy because Jesus is coming and is the judge to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So first and foremost, this is something that Paul sees and commends to Timothy as a responsibility of pastors who are leading the church. That said, it is not just the job of pastors to confront problems in the church. I thought it might be helpful for us to discuss just for a couple of moments. Why is it hard to confront someone at church about a problem? There are a number of answers to this question, so I'm not looking for just one thing. Well, first and foremost, it's hard to confront anybody with a problem. Okay. You have no idea what the other person is how they're going to respond to that. And that creates a, a motivation of fear in that group. Yeah. I mean, even if it's something simple, like you hire somebody to, I don't know, put in a new sink at your house, and then something's crooked or there's a little drip, there's probably somebody in this room that's like, I'll just live with that for the next 10 years. I don't want to talk to them about it, right? So there's that, it's awkward, it's difficult. What else? Yes? In light of our own sin, a lot of times we lack boldness. Okay. What right do I have to point out this problem with this person when I have so many problems of my own? Okay. Okay. There's different costs. What's going to be the fallout if I do this? What else? I think those are probably some of the main ones. Can I do it if I'm not perfect? What will happen if I do it? 
and I just don't want to do it. You know, that, that's, that probably sums up some of the main issues. The first part of the chapter talks about why it's a good thing to do. Uh, one of the great themes in Proverbs is that those who embrace rebuke are wise and walk the path of life, while those who despise reproof find themselves to be fools careening toward death. So there's this idea of wisdom. Those who reject rebuke are foolish. Those who accept rebuke, either giving or receiving it, the responsibility of rebuke, I guess we could say, are, are expressing wisdom. So let's look at some of these verses from Proverbs, a bunch of verses from Proverbs, uh, but we can, uh, we can turn to some of these together. So Proverbs 10.17, someone like to read that for us? Kelly? Okay, that one's going to show up in both lists, the positive and the negative. What is that one saying? Okay. Yeah. So if you, if, you, if you pay attention to it, you're on the path of life. If you ignore it, you're going astray. And going astray is not just like, I took a wrong turn, the GPS will correct me, I'll get back on course. It's, I'm going the wrong way in opposition to God. It's, not, it's, a, it's a more serious kind of idea here. Uh, 12 1. Someone want to read 12 1? Bob? Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. All right. So when you're a little kid, sometimes maybe your parents tell you not to call somebody else stupid. But God has the right to call us stupid if we're loving sin and rejecting truth, right? Whether we have the right to call each other that when the same thing is taking place, we, we, can, we can discuss a little bit. But, I mean, it's it's... It's foolishness, it's stupid, it's pointless, it is dangerous, right? Uh, in 12.1 when it says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, the way that knowledge is used in Proverbs, is it just facts or what, what, what is he getting at there? Okay, knowledge of God. Yeah, it, it's knowledge organized around who God is and things that God has said. So it's not like, how to do a geometry equation? It's not how to, or geometry problem. It's not necessarily um, how to uh, fix your thermostat at your house. It's not those kinds of things. It is knowledge connected with God, which then flows into wisdom. And what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Just to kind of review from when we thought through Proverbs, Jonathan. Yeah, good. So I can know a lot of truth about God that I've heard in Sunday school or in church or whatever, but if it doesn't impact my life, then it's kind of like I've got an encyclopedia on my shelf. And the difference between an encyclopedia on my shelf and actually developing skills that I use in daily life is kind of the difference between wisdom and knowledge. And so we need both because wisdom springboards off of knowledge. But um, Chapter 15, there's three verses there. Retta, do you want to do those for us? 5, 10, and 32. problem. <coughs> <laughs> 
So what are some of the different things emphasized in these verses? Okay. Yeah. So where, let's, let's think about where is one of the sources reproof comes from? Verse 5. Okay. Verse 5, though, from who? Father. So parents. So that ties in well with like Ephesians 6, 4, right? It's or Ephesians 6, the first few verses there. It's the, the father's responsibility primarily to make sure that his children are being nurtured in what's true about God, brought up in the right way. But then obviously, yes, in the context of the church, and it comes from God's Word. Uh, verse 10, it, it's a serious thing, right? He who hates reproof will die. Now, this is a proverb. Is, is it true that every person who ignores reproof immediately dies? No. But certainly, there is a clear trend of those who ignore wise instruction having their lives cut short, right? That, that's what the proverb is talking about. And then verse 32, it kind of is an interesting thing. We might think it's going to say something like, the one who rejects reproof is going to get other people in trouble with him. But that's not what it says, is it? What does it say? Despises himself. So it harms us when we ignore reproof. We tend to think that it, well, yeah, bad consequences for somebody else, but it harms us. Uh, but then the idea of understanding, again, is... Connected with wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is truth about God. Understanding is kind of a, a perspective on how that works in the world. And then wisdom is actually putting those things into uh, practice. All right, uh, now we're going to go backwards. So, chapter 13, verse 18. Who'd like to read that for us? Tim? Why, why would that be true? Yeah. And if you don't pay attention to reproof when you're younger, how is life generally going to go for you later on? <laughs> Not very well, right? Because we form some of these habits when we're young, and then it's, it's not impossible. By God's grace, we can change them, but it certainly affects the direction of our lives. Uh, we'll keep going back a little bit. Um, we'll hit chapter 5 on the way by. So 5. Um, should be 12 through 23, not 24. We're not going to read all of these, but um, it talks about in the context of the adulteress. Verse 12, for example, How have I hated instruction of my heart, spurned reproof? I didn't listen. I was almost in utter ruin. And then the long-term effect of lack of reproof when it comes to something like temptation and immorality is the end of the chapter. God sees. God watches. The wicked will be captured and bound by his sin. He will die for lack of instruction. In the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. And so the context is specifically um, the issue of adultery. But the broader thing is the reason that that sin takes effect in someone's life is because they fail to listen to God's instruction regarding those kinds of things. Uh, and then chapter 1. Uh, what's the warning of wisdom to the simple? Uh, verses 25 and 26. Someone read that for us. 1, 25 and 26. Jonathan, you have it? 
Okay. So there's this, there's this reality that wisdom personified mocks the simple who reject reproof. And then even at the end of the chapter, the waywardness of the naive will kill them, the complacency of fools will destroy them. And so there's uh, a variety of um, warnings against rejecting rebuke. And then the blessings, it's actually the warnings first and then the blessings to follow. We've looked at some of these already, 13, 18, 15, 5, uh, 31, and 32. Uh, I don't think, we looked at 12, 1 also. Uh, most of these are, what's that? 123, right here. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Read no, Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So these things are set in the context of relationship with God, right? So accepting reproof is part of rightly following God. And that kind of sums up the rest of the passages, a uh, number of which we've already looked at. And so, uh, are, there, are there warnings against rejecting rebuke? Very clearly. Are there blessings of accepting it? Yes. God will have a relationship with us and will grow in that relationship with Him. So, why then should we rebuke other people? Why should we rebuke other people? Proverbs 25.12 says, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. It's saying something more than about jewelry, right? What's, what's the point that it's making there? It's valuable. Is a, is a listening ear a good thing? What does it need to be in the mind of the author perfected or made beautiful? Wise reproof. So the person can be ready to listen, but you need the other person to come alongside and give that reproof, and that's like the ear and then the earring and the ear. So, um, uh, so that's the point that Solomon is making about the giving and the receiving of reproof. And then, as I recall, Psalm 141.5 makes a similar point. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. So there's some things that, that qualify the context of rebuke, rebuke. It's done by the righteous. It is done in kindness. And the person receiving it needs to have a willing spirit to receive it. He says, typically it's easier for others in our lives not to say anything, but just let us go merrily on our way down the path of folly and death. But reproof is an act of love, a willingness to own that awkward moment, and perhaps having your counsel thrown back in your face for the risk of doing someone good. So, um, we don't want to do it because it will be awkward. But if we don't do it, what's he saying our attitude is toward that person? Yeah. And sometimes love is kind of twisted in society today to mean like doing only what the other person wants. And this is doing what the person needs. So if I see you sinning, if you see me sinning, and I'm just like, that's an uncomfortable conversation. Let's skip it. That's not helpful. Yes? Maybe another why we don't do it is because we don't have as close of a relationship with 
would say generally speaking, if you've got two really close friends, mm -hmm. you probably find a lot of rebuke, a lot of reproof, a lot of that accountability that's needed to let you to help them grow. But when you don't have as close, you have these superficial relationships or uh, I like the way Gary Smalley explains the different levels of communication. When you're only in that one, level one and two communication, you're not getting into those to the heart of what's going on in your heart and your mind and your emotions and all these things. And so because you don't have that relationship, you're unwilling. So just for sake of clarity, what do you mean by like what sort of conversations does he have in view by what you're talking about? So like level one is, so uh, it's pretty nice out today, huh? Okay, so the weather, okay. You know, and then the level five would be like, you know, this is what's really bothering me. This is what I'm struggling with. Will you pray for me? You know, sure. so you've got that, that range of conversation. Okay. So I think that's a good point to bring up because I think it sets the backdrop for he's going to have seven steps to go through with regard to rebuke. We'll get to those here in a few minutes. But um, I think those steps are dramatically easier if there is a relationship in which to bring those things up. So one question is... Um, what are some obstacles to developing closeness with other people in the church? Okay. He said time. Sure. Let, can you explain that a little bit more, what you're thinking? Yeah. Okay, so in connection with that, if we are not gathered regularly, that limits those opportunities. If we expect the church to be the sole provider of those opportunities instead of creating them ourselves, that's another. Because the reality is, we do fellowship kinds of things or potential fellowship opportunities with things like potlucks or a game night around the first of the year, those sorts of things. But if you wait for those things five, six times a year, that's really not sufficient to get to know people well, right? So when I was trying to get to know people in the context of some of the hobbies I've had over the years, I discovered that it was not feasible to say I'm going to have a relationship in which I can easily speak the gospel into someone's life when I show up to a monthly or every other month club meeting. That's just not enough contact with somebody to get to know them. The people I was actually able to witness to, I was able to do it because... I was going over their house and we were swapping fish or equipment or we were having conversations about a particular topic online and, you know, in the context of the hobby, I wasn't only making it about church and those sorts of things, but when there was an appropriate opportunity, I'd say something about that. And I'm not trying to hold myself up as an example. I'm just giving you illustrations of um, uh, this, this idea that we have to have more constant points of contact in order to have those sorts of relationships. Uh, yes? I would say, even with brothers at arms, yeah. I mean, we normally have four or five guys, and because we get into the topic of these things that are going on in our lives, even though it's every other week, we've had a lot of opportunities sure. to discuss these things. Sure. Good. Now, what about the idea of so, shameless advertisement for Brothers at Arms show up. No. <laughs> but if you don't come, it would be it's good. It's a good time of fellowship. 
Same thing with the ladies' Bible study. And so here's the constant line we walk with those sorts of things. If you have a legitimate reason not to be there, we're not trying to guilt people to feel bad because you're sick or someone that you are caring for has needs or those sorts of things. But if the reason you're not there is the reason that I tend to struggle with, which is it's Saturday morning and it's a chance to sleep in, then, you know, you can give up a couple Saturday mornings every month. So I, just kind of a, a gentle nudge there. I think one of the other reasons that we find it difficult to build the sort of relationships that we can easily have these conversations in is the idea of friendship in the context of the church can be kind of a tricky subject. So like, uh, we have responsibility toward everyone in the church because we're family connected through Christ, right? So at one level, I don't get to say, well, you know, this person doesn't like the same things I like as much, so I'm just going to skip talking to them. That's not really an option for us because God has placed us together in this family. There's the natural reality that if we have certain common interests, we may find it easier to talk to people. But some of that has to um, be filtered through the reality that in the context of the church, what's the one thing that unites us above all other things? It ought to be Christ, right? And so the fact that this person likes cars and this person likes knitting and that person likes watching movies and this person likes, that shouldn't be the main obstacle to us getting to know people. Um, I, I'll admit it can be a challenge because sometimes we're not sure where to start the conversation, but if the goal in the church is to move beyond those sorts of topics to the more important things, then we will sort of push through that awkwardness. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be as close with every single person in the church as you are with every other person in your church. But it also means that you don't need to um, have, um, like, here's my group here, and here's this group over here, and here's this group over here. And I'll admit that tends to be a problem with larger churches, right? But it can creep into any size church. And so all of those things, even though it's not specifically in here, I think it's a, it's a good thing for us to think about if there's not a relationship in which we feel comfortable speaking truth, we will tend not to speak truth. There's a sense that I have to do it regardless of that, right? Because that's part of my job description. There's a sense that each of you has to do it regardless of that because that's a part of your job description. Paul says, I'm convinced in Christ you're able also to admonish one another. So we have a responsibility to do it, but it will be easier if we've taken effort to build connections with people before we get to the awkward moment of, hey, something's going on. And as we get through these seven steps, there's this element of making sure that we understand the problem and making sure that we understand the problem is also connected to how well we know somebody. Because if there's someone who jokes in a particular way and we take that one impression and we're like, oh, they're being unloving and unkind, and we don't have a backdrop of all these other things, then we're going to form a false assessment of what's going on and confront when we don't need to. Or if we don't have regular enough contact with somebody um, to know that something is different from normal, then we may skip confronting when we ought to. And so in light of all those things, uh, he says if we value God's wisdom, 
and he gives examples of passage in Colossians and in Proverbs, we should listen to God's rebuke by, to us by means of fellow Christians. However difficult it may be to initiate or to receive rebuke, if we really believe that we are all sinners and that unchecked sin leads to pain and misery and eternal destruction, love will constrain us to give the gift of loving reproof. Why? What's the number one reason that we don't confront one another about our sin? It's because we're not convinced how bad sin is. Because if we're convinced how bad sin is, then issues of this makes me feel hesitant or I'm not entirely sure what to say or I wonder what will happen when I say this, those sort of get swept away to some extent by the real realization that someone's soul is at stake. So think about what it says in James, the one who confronts the sinner about the error of his way, turned back his soul from death. I mean, that's what's at stake. And we tend not to think of it in those terms. We're like, my feelings are going to be hurt. Their feelings are going to be hurt. And I'm not saying wade in carelessly or harshly or without thinking, but I'm also saying think about what's at stake. So then what are some steps of godly reproof? Check your own heart first. Okay, Matthew 7. This deals with, uh, but I'm a sinner too. Okay. That doesn't mean we have no responsibility to confront other people about their sin. It just means we need to acknowledge our sin and be in a place where we're trying to deal with our sin. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for humility. So Matthew 7, 5. Log out of your own eye before the splinter out of his. Galatians 6, 1. Spirit of humility as you seek to restore the one who's being tempted. Realizing you're a sinner. You could be in that same spot. Their sin could be a source of temptation to you if you're not wise about it. You know, all of those sorts of things. And it's the, the second one, and this is a good correction to the, the person who thinks like, number one, check, good to go, all right? Number two, seek to sympathize. The person that sort of rushes over number one and might struggle with the humility aspect, hopefully will be brought up short for a moment by number two where it says seek to sympathize. So this does not mean that we act as though sin is okay and we excuse it because it's like everybody sins. But how do you approach rebuke? Do you, do you approach rebuke the way that you hope others would approach you with rebuke? Or do you dive in without thinking first? So what's the difference between showing sympathy and, um, like, what's the balance between showing sympathy and going overboard on it and just excusing everybody's sin? Like, what, what does that look like? What's the difference there, maybe? Or is this a biblical idea? Should we not? Should we not show sympathy? Okay. Okay. All right. So if we never rebuke, okay. What else? Okay. And be humble while sympathizing. And tell them I 
Yeah, I mean they're they're kind of closely they're related. Close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so sometimes we um, there's a couple of truths that help balance this out. One is the reality that we're all sinners. So if we're all sinners, there needs to be a measure of humility. The other is God's not happy with sin. So if we stop with we're all sinners and we don't get to, but we need to change then we've forgotten God's attitude towards sin, right? And so, um, think about Jesus' manner in confronting the woman caught in adultery, and I know there's some textual disputes about what all verses should be included in that story, but go and sin no more. So, he recognizes that the Pharisees or Sadducees or whoever it was in that story has kind of set up a trap for her, and they're not really concerned about her soul. They just want her to get in trouble with Jesus and get Jesus in trouble with breaking the law. So there's a reality that people are caught in difficult situations. Sin can be bondage as well as willful, willful choice. But, it, but we need both. We need the, you're in a difficult spot, God can help you change. This is sin, such were some of you. You know, all of those sorts of things that the New Testament lays out for us. So we go on to number three, pray for restoration. I don't need a show of hands, but I just want you to think about this. Did you pray before you confronted someone the last time you confronted someone? Matthew 18 is a familiar passage on church discipline, but what's the goal? Restoration. You have won your brother. Right? We tend to focus on the, and he's going to get kicked out of church if he doesn't get fix it, you know. And that is the ultimate end of that process of church discipline. But the goal is, at each stage of the process, the hope, the thing we're praying for, is that God would restore that person. Uh, an example of this is in First and Second Corinthians. First Corinthians 5, there's a man committing gross immorality, incest with his mother-in-law. 2 Corinthians 3 or 4, Paul says, He's repented. You guys need to take him back in. And, and that's how it's supposed to look. Sin, hopefully not that extent of sin, but whatever sin, confronted even to the point of church discipline, but then sometimes we feel like, okay, and now we're going to write the person off. There's no hope of them coming back. That man was able to come back, and Paul had to tell the church, all right, now he's repented. Accept him back in. He's, he's restored to the fellowship. So pray for restoration. Hebrews 3 will come up more in the next one, so we'll skip over that. Uh, other passages, Luke 17, I forget offhand. 2 Thessalonians 3. Okay, okay. And then 2 Thessalonians 3 is the, the passage in the context of the person who's not paying attention to apostolic instruction, specifically with laziness. James 5 is the idea of confessing your sin to one another. I mean, the goal in all these things is that the person would be restored. 
So not only did you pray the last time you rebuked someone, but what was your motivation in doing it? Did you do it because your feelings were hurt or because you desired that person to draw closer to God and in unity with Christ's church? I mention this because we live in a culture of people being offended about everything. We need to recognize the difference between sin and I don't like that. So sin would be I lied. I don't like that would be someone wore white socks with dark shoes, right? And maybe you like that, and so it doesn't bother you, but some people it really offends. Um, the one is not something to confront the person about. Unless it's your husband or wife, you can have a conversation about it. But the lying, confront the person about that, right? Often, we are driven to have the process of rebuke because we feel like someone has done wrong to us and our feelings are hurt and praying for restoration helps us refocus the attention on what's pleasing to God, God's goal in the circumstance and helps us to have a right heart attitude when we go into it. Or number four, be quick. Hebrews 3 talks about speaking truth into each, one, each other's lives, rebuking one another now, while it's still today. Why? why? Why is it important to deal with sin promptly? Right. Okay, we don't, we're not guaranteed tomorrow, Evan? Right. Okay. Yeah, the, the opportunity for dealing with sin is most effective in that small window after the sin has taken place, right? Um, how do we know when something rises to the level of rebuke? Okay. So we'll we'll get to that in number six a little bit more, but yeah, definitely. What what else? Oh, oh, he said clear unrepentant sin. So I have a question about that under number six. So we'll talk more about that when we get down to there. But uh, the point the author's making is this: we tend to think that it's like normal, 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 big conversation, right? He's saying it should be a lot of little points of confrontation. What do you think? Do you agree or disagree with that? Why do we have... Uh, Good. It's important with kids for sure. It's interesting in Hebrews 3, it supplies the words, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Um, and so I recognize that every day is supplied. It's in italics in most translations. But he's making the argument that we live in such honest and regular community 
and speak without delay and receive it with gospel-conditioned thick skin, that mild, gentle words of rebuke and correction are commonplace, that sin is regularly nipped in the bud rather than given time and space to grow into the tall, nasty weed it will become. We're coming up on spring. Several of you are very aware of this, right? So what we're going to have is a bunch of weeds. You pull them in April and May, they're little. You pull them in August, sometimes they got a taproot three feet long, right? So deal with sin promptly so that it doesn't take root in our hearts and become worse. So, so be quick. Fifthly, be kind. So uh, 2 Timothy, the pattern for pastors rebuking sin. Rebuke and exhort with all patience, right? So, again, this is where the humility comes in. This is where allowing for God's Spirit to work over the course of time comes in. If we go after somebody and we're just completely careless in our, our, our attitude, our manner toward them, that doesn't honor God. And there's some other passages that you can look at. Number six, be clear and specific. So, in the context of being clear and specific. Give me just a moment here. I think that might I think that might be first Corinthians four two. Uh, the idea of being uh, trustworthy in the context of being stewards is I believe the example that he's giving there. No, he says 2 Corinthians 4 2. Oh, okay. 2 Corinthians 4 2. Not craftiness or um, adulterating, changing the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's in the context of Paul giving the gospel. He's applying it to the context of us giving rebu rebuke. We're not supposed to be. Uh, tricky or unclear or deceptive in the way that we're giving rebuke. And then alongside of that, the passage from Colossians, which says, along the same lines, Paul wanted to be clear in the way that he spoke the gospel. He's applying that to being clear in the way that we rebuke other people. Why is vague rebuke of sin unhelpful? Good. And why won't we have a vague rebuke for sin? Or because we're not really sure if it's sin or not, right? So we're kind of trying to beat around the bush and dance around the question. We're like, uh, you know, I, I think maybe you should think about if, if, if the thing that you've done is the best thing to do. If you have to nuance it in that way, it might not actually be something you need to confront them about. It might be something that you need to wait a little bit longer and say, yeah, I think this is a problem. How many of you have had a bad day? Not today, but in general. Have you ever had a bad day? Okay. When you have a bad day, is it an excuse to behave sinfully? No. My point is that a one-time act of whatever, this person spoke rudely, this person was being somewhat dishonest in the thing that they were saying, while might fall under the constant 
low-level kind of rebuke. It's not like, we need to deal with this now, and if you don't repent of this, we're going to go talk to some other people, and then we're going to go to the church, and you're going to be out of the church in a month if you don't deal with this right now. And you say, no one would act that way. But sometimes we kind of come at it with that kind of attitude, like, all right, I've seen this person do this thing, and I'm going to pounce on it, right? We tend in our culture to not do anything, but sometimes we swing to the other extreme, and we just jump on things. And this is where, yes, be quick in the sense of regular, small rebuke over sin, but be clear and specific, and you can't be clear and specific if you don't know what's going on, and if you don't know for sure that it is sin, and if you don't say, okay, yeah, we need to, we need to talk about this. And so, these things kind of all help to balance each other out, right? So, the, the, the level of the response is proportionate to how serious of an issue it is in someone's life, potentially, right? Um, I went to, Kelly and I went to a workshop on uh, Friday, and he was speaking on the interpretation in Titus 1.6 of what it means. Uh, some people take it as, your children need to be Christians, as far as qualifications for a pastor. Some people take it as, your children need to be well-managed, because that would parallel what Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy. So, in connection with that discussion, there was the question of, if you take that passage as children need to be well-managed, which I think fits the context and what Paul said to Timothy as well, what does that look like? Does that look like my kid ran around the church once? Okay, you guys are asking me to resign. Hopefully not. But on that connection, we need to recognize that um, we are looking for patterns, not for single instances of, of a problem. And we're getting close to the end of our time here. So the last point here is to follow up. And it takes that from James 5. If they receive it well, follow up with a note or call or conversation and commend that evidence of grace in their life. If they don't respond well, follow up with some further expression of love for them, perhaps a reminder that you have nothing to gain but their good, that you're happy to be wrong if the correction was pretty subjective, and that you're praying for them as they consider your observation. So, we've got to follow up, right? It's not just, I do this and I run away and we don't talk about it again. It's, we talk about this, give time and space for the Holy Spirit to work, talk about it again if it's still an issue, talk about it again if they've repented, rejoice with them that God's done a work in their heart and life, uh, if it's still an issue, then keep following through the process of discipline that's outlined in various places in Scripture. We need to be consistent in this process, committed to it, continue to work through it. And so I thought these steps were very practical and helpful, so I'd encourage you to look through them, think about them, ask yourself where in those things you might tend to fail, and ask yourself, am I giving and accepting rebuke in the context of the church in a way that honors God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths. This is a difficult task because of our sin, because of our natural tendencies, because of the world in which we live. 
Help us to see the value and the importance of it in light of what you've called us to do, the seriousness of the condition of our souls in your sight. I just pray that you would be honored in these things. In Christ's name, amen.